So in the realm of things you needed uh-huh. that you didn't know you needed until you experienced it. There are lots of those. Um, I was at this Rock and Tours concert last night, and yeah. the opening band is in Oklahoma City Local. This is not a local podcast, but um, they're called the Casualties of Jazz. And so just l- let me just sell you the style here. So Casualties of Jazz is a three-piece jazz jam band. And so uh, what they do, they've got a uh, upright bass player, they've got a organ player, and they've got a drummer. And it's just jam jazz. But all that they play are Black Sabbath covers. Dig it. Done jazz. This is almost two in here wheelhouse. This it is, is so... <laughs> I didn't even know. It's Yeah, but it's... It, you say that you don't even know, but that makes perfect sense. It like aligns with your tastes because it is so specific. It, right. I also... Would like to see like a heavy metal band, but they only do Miles Davis covers. Yeah, I want, I want the shoe like on the other foot. Grew and, yeah, yeah. Like, yeah, yeah, that'd be fun too. Yeah. <laughs> Actually, that would kick that would kick ass. Yeah, <laughs> but yeah, it's kind of got that weird kind of apocalyptica. Do you know that band? Yeah, kind of feel where they do a lot of uh, Metallica covers and whatnot. Uh, it, it, but they, you know, they're 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 um, more of a classical um, kind of band. Uh, Apocalyptica is, but this just man, I didn't even. I went to the show. I had an extra, a friend had an extra ticket and just brought me along uh, to get to go. And again, um, Rockinteurs and Jack White, you know, they're good, and uh, it was worth the time. But it was the opener for me, and uh, they were awesome. It was. I didn't know I needed it, but now I can't live without it. It's always fun to go to a concert and find a new band. That's really good. And, That's fun. Yeah, yeah. I had when I got to see Run the Jewels when uh, Heath and I were living together, and uh, he took me for my birthday uh, a couple years ago. Um, Denzel Curry uh, was somebody I wasn't aware of. He was one of the openers. Fuck, it was so good. It was mm. so good. Uh, great. I mean, just an incredible stage presence. Uh, but yeah, just, I mean, good musician or a good rapper. But uh, his his actual, like, energy as a stage performer was truly uh, jaw-dropping. I was like, man, he was going hard for his entire set. It was badass. Yeah, I, seeing an opener that you love is is really always a fun experience. And speaking of, a good time. Yeah, speaking of seeing things that you're unaware of, um, or at least you know not uh, particularly versed in, um, Henry, Portrait of, the Ser- of a Serial Killer. Oh, hey, we're film. getting on topic. And uh, it's uh, a movie that maybe we didn't know we needed, and maybe we do now, or maybe we don't. That verdict will be revealed to you here in just a few moments. Here at the close of Shocktober 8, it's the weird. Ocho. It's weird that Dalton wanted to pick a documentary about a candy bar company. <laughs> As his final film for Shocktober the Ocho. Yeah. Archer, I, Arthur, I, I think you watched the wrong movie, my friend. I kept waiting for them to paint something. <laughs> nope, wrong and movie. And that Henry Bar was never sitting for its <laughs> portrait. And so I... Uh... Yeah, there's very little painting in the movie. Uh, shockingly little. <laughs> so, uh, by the way, it's I'm a different still, kind of art. If you're tuning in for the first time, this is the Good Trash genre cast. I am still Dustin. Uh, I'm still Dalton. I am Arthur. Sometimes and we're here to talk to you about this particular movie, Henry: Portrait of a Serial Killer, from uh, the mid '80s and '86, '89. Depends where you how they list if they go off that festival date or that actual release. Date. Distribution yeah. is a important factor in those datings of these films, but uh, nonetheless, uh, we will be talking about this Henry Rooker joint. And it's going to be good times. Uh, Henry Rooker, Michael, Michael Rooker. Rooker, John McNaughton. Who's Henry? Okay. Who's Henry Rooker? Is there a real Henry? Rooker? I don't know. I probably. Oh, Henry's just the name of the movie. Yeah, that's what I did. Henry yeah. Lee Rooker. <laughs> oh God. Oh gosh. Oh, it does sound like a serial killer, doesn't it? Yeah, it does. Uh, but wow. nonetheless, uh, what we do here on the show is uh, we do analysis, not review, and that does mean spoilers. And so, if you have not seen this movie, uh, we are going to spoil it. What little plot there is, uh, we will avoid it in a sense. 
early on in the show. We'll have synopsis, we'll have our thumbs up, thumbs down reviews, which are relatively spoiler light, and then we'll get into uh, expanding our syllabus in which uh, we talk about how you might use this film that you've never watched in film studies course in a film studies course, and then once we get down to business, all spoiler bets are off. So that is the disclaimer and the warning for you all. So, Arthur Gordon, let's go ahead and hear that synopsis, please. Following a back and forth with the ratings board and distributors, it never looked like John McNaughton's Henry, portrait of a serial killer, would go beyond a few festival screenings until film critics like Roger Ebert championed the challenging and subversive look at a real-world monster. Henry seems like the boy next door. He and his parolee roommate Otis go through the days working odd jobs and drinking beer in a tiny apartment, but Henry harbors a dark secret. Once Otis's sister shows up on the doorstep, she and Henry hit it off. But his attraction to Becky sets something off in his head. One night, after he and Otis pick up a couple of sex workers, Henry snaps. He kills both women and dumps the bodies. Otis is shocked but not scared. He and Otis begin killing as an outlet, but they get too deep. Loosely based on the lives of Henry Lee Lucas and Otis Toole, Henry Portrait of a Serial Killer is a dark dive into the world of a cold-blooded murderer that slowly opens the door and then cranks up the violence. Yep. Yep. That's it. That that you got it, bud. That's a good one. Hey, thanks. That there is the movie. So let's do some reviews. Um, Dalton, you're the picker of the film. This is your blind spot, dead spot. Mm. Um, mm. following our marathon. So, what do you think? Well, stark is a word that gets thrown around a lot in describing this film. Uh, it's probably one of the first words you hear uttered, and I'm gonna go ahead and continue that. It's stark. Yeah. I I, I really went looking for people's opinions on this i read ebert's review from february of 1990 uh where he was pretty damn effusive in his praise of the film and i think rightfully so i mean ebert uh is, is a film critic who is kind of known for you know we talked about ca lejeune last week and her response to psycho uh ebert uh in his time i feel like was really always doing his best to thread that needle of understanding violence that bothered him uh you know there's a couple films that he, he just you know blue velvet's a big example uh, of a film that he just couldn't get past how mean that film was. And it's interesting to me that he likes Henry uh, because it comes out around the same time. And I, and I, he, again, uh, Blue Velvet had an easier time getting released, so I'm sure he saw that first. Uh, but his response to Henry, I think, is telling because Ebert is so interested in film as a device for empathy and a device and windows into people's personal lives. Uh, and Henry does a great job of that. McNaughton and his co-writers, I forget, I think, I forget if he has just one co-writer, two co-writers on this. Uh, but him and, and his production team on this film really do a great job of presenting Henry as fundamentally unknowable. Uh, it, it seems to me that early in the production of this, I think McNaughton realized, uh, and again, we can't, I can't attribute it all to him, just, you know, as a, you know, one of the credited writers and the director, I'm going to give him a a little bit of our authorship. Uh, we'll get to Rooker, who I think deserves a lot of authorship here, too. Uh, but I, I think the film rightfully understands that there's just certain things ab about this story and this character that we can't get an inner light into. So it has to be very fly on the wall. And I know McNaughton was uh, very purposeful in the production of this film of trying to keep it real, you know, doing it in 16 millimeter, uh, doing it without permits, letting people argue in the background famously, uh, not worrying about uh, all the right permits and stuff. Uh, it, it's it's a film that lives and breathes in that gritty uh, uh, feel. And we talk, we've talked uh, the fucking word gritty to death in the last decade since The Dark Knight came out. Uh, but, but Henry Portrait of a Serial Killer is something that understands that gritty is not just an aesthetic. It is part of a film's narrative. Uh, it, it is part of a, a life. And I, I think... 
this film does a good job of really it's it's not the grit so much as it is the lived in nature of a, a lower class transient existence in a city like Chicago you know a big midwestern city lots of driving uh lots of odd jobs it's easy to make a couple of bucks and disappear and i think just centering on henry in his time in chicago is is interesting again this film uh deviates freely and as needed from the real story of henry lee lucas uh the uh, Becky, the real-life person who Henry really murdered, uh, as far as we know. Um, he copped to a lot of murders he didn't do, uh, but she was 11. So I, I think this film very wisely tries to find places where Henry can seem empathetic, and his relationship with Becky and his emotional vulnerability with her is the closest that we get. But I think McNaughton never tries to make Henry empathetic, and I think, to me, that's one of the strengths of the film. It makes him complicated, and I would even go as far as to say it makes him sympathetic, but it never tries to get you to feel bad for Henry, because nothing bad happens to Henry. Henry is a hurricane. He's he's a great white shark. He's not, you know, he's not Hannibal Lecter. He's not Patrick Bateman. We'll talk more about those kind of fictional real-life distinctions more in expanding the syllabus, but this film just, man, did a number on me. It, I don't look away from my television a whole lot uh, when we watch horror films, even during Martyrs. Uh, when we did that a couple of Shocktobers ago, I, I really try to stick it out, you know, and there's some pretty unpleasant, uh, practical gore effects in that film. And I, I really try to sit through, this is a film that didn't have gore effects get me to look away. Uh, it, it is a film that is constantly challenging the idea of you as a voyeur on these voyeurs. Uh, you know, it, it, it much like we talked about this idea last week with Psycho, uh, and I was kind of dismissive at the idea of the uh, the auteur that or a film. Let's not uh, assume authorship, yeah. but a film challenging you for watching it. Right? We talked about yeah. this last week, and I was very dismissive and poo pooed it and said, "I'm oh, gonna fuck you, you dirty little pervert, uh, Hitchcock. I'm not gonna feel bad for watching your movie. I kind of feel bad for watching Henry. <laughs> I feel gross about it. Uh, and uh, yeah, I, I I'm rethinking my stance on that because I, I think John McNaughton does a good job of making a film that is that hard to watch, but is so damn well made that I I couldn't look away. I mean, it is really I, I love micro budget filmmaking. I really do because I think you you get to see what what a filmmaker and what a film team are made of. They they can't hide behind money, mm-hmm. and I think Henry, uh, if nothing else. Uh, say we've, we've said about the violence and its depiction of a serial killer and trying to uh, be a horror film that's not really about horror, that's more about dread and real-world evil and how simple real-world evil looks mm-hmm. when all the theatrics are gone. Um, for a film that does that, it's great, but I think even just as a film that shows what you can do with little to no money, that's that's something truly special. And again, they, they had a $100,000 budget, which is... A lot of it's money. It's not nothing. That's yeah. not nothing. 1986. That's a pretty good indie budget. Yeah. But you know, indie films weren't as you know snatched up as they were uh, in the mid 90s. Yeah. The indies don't break until Sex Lies and Videotape. Yeah. 92, 94. Well, that, 89 is what I would is say. That 80? Oh, that's right. Sex Lies yeah. and Videotape. Yeah, but yeah. yeah, I mean, the the big boom of studios and mini majors and shit buying up your your art film. That's 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 a thing that happens after Henry. Mm-hmm. So a hundred thousand dollars is a pretty big gamble mm-hmm. on this. Uh, yeah. So, you know, they, they had some money from people who had money, and they, they stretched it, man. They really did. And if nothing else, you, you've got to hand it to Henry for that. Uh, but, again, the the absolute doom and horror that this film manages to communicate without ever, I think maybe you could find maybe a handful of exceptions, but I 
would say for the most part, doing a pretty good job of staying away from the realm of the exploitative. That's a feat that is kind of unprecedented. And mm-hmm. I, I was prepared for something a little bit more exploitative, honestly, um, even in doing some of my research and hearing the take that a lot of people feel it doesn't come across that way. I was still prepared for something that was going to rub me the wrong way. And it, I was rubbed the wrong way. I assure you, but it's, it's not a gleeful film. Uh, you yeah. know, it's, it's doesn't take if any this joy. Rubs in you the right way. You might want to go talk to somebody. Hey, uh, we're recording this very close to mental health awareness day. Uh, yeah. If, if you're feeling bad, don't stab anybody and smash the head with the TV. You know, go go talk to somebody. It's it'll, all right. It'll help. We all feel bad sometimes, man. I feel bad, you know, like 30% of the time at least. <laughs> Easy. Just go talk to somebody. It's okay. Uh, but, yeah, no, if you're, you're absolutely right, Dustin, if this rubs you the wrong way or right way, you need to have a conversation with somebody. But, again, it stays away from the exploitative in a pretty fucking masterful way, if you ask mm-hmm. me. And that, to me, is what really makes it worth singing its praises and probably going to be part of the reason I continue to to sell this film to people because I liked it a lot. All right. Well, thank you very much for that, Mr. Dolensford. Hey, Arthur, do you like this movie and not or so or why? I, I'm a little torn on it. Um, it wasn't what I was expecting. I think the back half of this movie was a lot more what I was expecting gotcha. the whole thing to be um, because I think after he and Otis start working together, uh, the dynamic of the film changes a lot. And I, I was expecting kind of that element throughout the whole piece, uh, this kind of more nuanced character study thing that's going on in the first half I wasn't really prepared for. Uh, so that was a little weird to get around. Um, I, I, I like the opening a lot. I, I like the construction, this dialectic editing approach to piecing these horrendous scenes with everyday Joe Henry yeah. going to work, and here going the, to the cafe. The, odd, the presumable audio of the attack yeah. that led to the murder scene is, yeah, I, I'm with you, Arthur. I love that stuff. It's something we talked about last week on Psycho, mm, uh, yeah. where uh, you know Marion's hearing these conversations, some of them fictional, some of them real. And it's the same element, right? It's kind of putting us in the headspace of the moment. Yeah. Uh, and I think that's an interesting element to play with. Uh, so I, I do like that opening quite a bit. Um, but the fly on the wall thing doesn't always work quite as well for me because there's just so little happening. Um, that's fair yeah and you know it's just we're eating dinner we're drinking a beer and it's fine but it, I, I think it's a matter of my expectations mm-hmm. versus what i was uh receiving mm. um as far as micro budget filmmaking yeah i think he does a great job mcnaughton uh ultimately i think pulls it together in a very slick manner there's some editing things that feel a little choppy just i think it is just that amateur filmmaking element of it um but michael rooker is phenomenal oh God, yeah far and away uh, a great performance um the level of emotion that he brings to the role and doesn't bring and also is able to elicit i think to your point it's not about empathy it's about sympathy and those things because there are moments like i could you know in, in certain moments i'm like i could probably hang out with this guy like he seems like an average joe he, i mean mm-hmm. he, he sells that kind element eyes in weird places yeah i yeah. mean he sells that element, especially the stuff with with him and becky uh, interacting over dinner and going to get a steak and there's you know the way he's able to i think capture that element of what i perceive as you know serial killer sociopath would you know like oh he's just an everyday guy like there's nothing wrong with this guy well and you know becky gives us enough about her background that uh, all you got to be is as nice as henry is uh, i mean his yeah. her bar for acceptable behavior is pretty fucking low as she lets yeah. us know yeah and henry is not like otis otis is lecherous and uh, you know a very different character yeah. and henry is clearly more evil but in a way that's 
harder to define. Yeah. yeah, you're right, Arthur. He's he does so has so much vulnerability in those scenes that it doesn't make Becky seem like an unbelievable character. Yeah, uh, but I, I I think Becky's one of the more interesting elements of the film. Yeah. I, I don't love portions of where her character goes as a device later in the film, um, particularly with Otis. Yeah. Um, but uh, going back to the back half of this film, especially the moment where uh, Rooker Henry, uh, you know. He, Becky's kind of made an advance on him. They have a moment. Otis interrupts, and Henry's got to duck out to get a cigarette, quote-unquote. Yeah. Um, from that moment through the end, I, I think it's just some of the best filmmaking in this movie. Uh, just the that climactic moment of her making the move and them having that kiss, and then through that finale. The two of them in that scene are so good. They're both doing so much in that, yeah. that really short scene. But, yeah, I'm, I'm with you, Arthur. That, whew. There's some pretty bravura shit going on in that end sequence. Yeah. And so there's a, a different type of energy in that back half after he and Otis work together. Uh, that's not as present in the first half that I really kind of wish would have been there. A little bounce it out, maybe a little more for me. Um, and so I, I think this is going to be one of those cases where uh, you might sell me on this movie by the end of the episode. <laughs> okay. But it's mostly because I'm, it's, eh, I'm, You're on the I'm kind of mad on it. Okay. For the most part. I, there are a lot of things to like about it. I, I do think it was, you know, I'm glad to watch this one. I've, reputations preceded it, especially yeah. in horror circles. Uh, and it's one I've wanted to catch up with. So I'm glad we finally sat down and had a reason to watch it. And so I'm not mad about it at all. All right. Very good. Very good. Thank you for that very much, Mr. Arthur Gordon. I like this movie uh, quite a bit as well, but also with some caveats uh, there. Uh, and we've, we've talked about a lot of things that are, that are really working well in the film. And uh, I, I would second those things. I do like the performances. I do feel like, Overall, the cast is doing a great job, but there are some pretty tenured sort of moments, and I can't really identify particular lines, but mostly with Otis, where he'll, he'll just have a line, and it does feel like, oh, I'm in a movie and I'm acting, and you know, and it's just f- a little off. I feel like there's also some moments with Otis, especially with Otis and Henry, that really kind of delve into this weird comedy shtick a few mm-hmm. times, which is a weird move. A off tonally. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting, but I'm also like... Am I supposed to laugh? I don't think so. I for me, yeah, I'm I'm right there with you guys on those moments. Uh, they really kind of stuck in my craw, but I didn't. I wasn't repulsed by them. Yeah, no. I'm just yeah, like I was confused. And that I, was funny. I laughed, but I don't know that I, I'm supposed to be. The second time that we had a moment like that, I was like, oh no, this is just how Otis is, and like it, it was a further development of Otis as a character of like yeah. the ways in which he is so on board with Henry's way of being and the way in which he's he's totally fine with being violent in a way that's just very different. Right. But yeah. like even like the broken video camera conversation is is, is again <laughs> sort of it's really funny. It, it's a, it's a funny scene but it's not the the again the the dialogue delivery itself is just weird. Yeah. It's just a little weird in place. I kind of like that scene, but we'll talk I, I, about I like later. the scene too, yeah. but there, 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 I get what you're... there's a little bit yeah, something sure, off-putting sure. there. And as Arthur mentioned, editing choices sometimes are a little strange, but also camera movement choices. There's a particular moment, and I think it's when Becky's inviting uh, Michael Rooker's character to uh, run off with her, mm-hmm. and uh, they're doing a slow kind of pan and close-up to her, but they frame part of the window alongside of it, and so that window sort of closes off, and it like changes the light of the frame. And it just it draws yeah. your attention. They're moving the camera instead of 
you know, the sort of emotional impact of I'm getting further yeah. and further inside the psyche of this character. And so there's like, so, so I guess, yeah. amateur rookie kind yeah, of errors here and there is what I, what I want to point out. And so I don't think it's a flawless, you know, you've just showed up as a, as a filmmaker. Auteur, sure. The scene show. This, brav- you know, this bravura moment that people are like breathless from, from John Luc Godard, which is just incredible, flawless kind of film. I, I don't have that same kind of feeling. Uh, with this movie, but that being said, I do like it. It's a lot of fun, and I think what it's doing fun is an interesting choice of words. Well, I but... think I think fun because what we're so used to and what we see so much of in a horror cinema, especially in slasher cinema, mm. is that romanticization of the serial killer. And there's nothing romantic about Michael Rooker's character. Not a fucking bit, I mean, dude. Th- th- there's n- th- this this movie wants you to hate him, wants you to dislike him, it wants you to feel some empathy for whatever it is that's broke on the inside of him that makes him the way that he is. But that is as far as it's willing to go. It's not, it's not to make you in any way root for him. And it is sort of watching a car accident and just the horror of this thing occurring. Yeah. And uh, so th- I think that's, that's really fascinating and really brave uh, as a style or a narrative sort of aesthetic uh, to approach. And so that I really, really enjoyed uh, about the film. Everything else, yeah, I really, really liked. I do think, and we didn't talk about this, the gore effects themselves when they're being used are really effective because they're pretty sparing. They're very sparse, yeah. Um, and they're just weirdly juicy, and that that's it. And yeah. even the sort of severed head, um, we won't name the character at this point. But yeah, there's a severed head later in the movie. It's good. It's a good it's severed a, head. There's a, wide there, head. There, there's a quick cut where uh, a character stabbed in the eye uh, and uh, to a oh, to, oh, a, yeah, to yeah. a dummy, yeah. and you know it's a dummy, but it's, it's bad though. But it, but it's so spare, yeah. that it gets away exactly. with it. Exactly. Yeah. So, no, I mean, bad as in like unpleasant to see. Yeah. No, right. it's, it yeah. works very well. It, as I an mean, effect. and you know it's an effect, but it because of the suddenness and the shockingness of it, it you you get away with it. Yeah. In a way that I think is a really excellent use of the smallness of the budget for effective gore effects. And so that side of things, I think I really really appreciate it as well. And again, the movie just sort of is historically interesting because mm. you know the BBFC uh, censorship and those kind of things that end up happening with it in its future. So yeah, I, en- I enjoyed the experience, but it was not, as you said, Arthur, what I expected at all. It was not nearly as graphic and brutal, honestly, yeah. as I expected. I mean, there's definitely some brutality there. I, I think I was, yeah, I was kind of putting this on a place with like a martyrs or an audition or, or each of the kids, you know, it's yeah. kind of in that headspace for this and Definitely not that for a while. Well, and that was the thing that I I, I was less surprised by this because I, I'd done a little research, uh, but that was the thing that kind of really helped me make my decision. And uh, if you want to give us some money, you can hear our Patreon episode about <laughs> our alternate picks that we didn't pick. But one of the things that pushed me towards this film was learning that it's got this reputation for being brutal, but I learned that the actual on-screen violence is fairly sparse. And that was, I was like, okay, what? Now I really need to know what's going on here. Uh, So I I was a little less shocked than you guys, but yeah, I'm fascinated by that aspect. Yeah. Because I I think that to me is, again, I know being different than what you guys expected kind of changed your reaction, but I'm very intrigued by that aspect of this movie. Uh, for sure, the, the first half for me, <laughs> ooh, uh, the first half for me, Arthur uh, really sang. So that's interesting to me. I'll, I'll try to make my case for uh, why I like that first half of the movie so much later. But 
Yeah, I'm, I'm glad you guys enjoyed it for what it was. Yeah, it's a good times. So I'm glad you picked it. I'm glad I got to it because I hadn't seen it yet either. Yeah, so, I know there's a yeah. blind spot for all of us. That was so, the other fun thing. Yeah, so for sure, for sure. Well, let's go ahead and do the thing. Um, the conceit of the show is either these are films that would not make their way into a film studies course, which of course isn't always the case. And film studies syllabi are pretty expansive at this point. They don't really just live in a canon. You know, not only watching Casablanca and Citizen Kane and you know film studies courses. But that being said, this is an unlikely pick, even though it could. Happen. You can see it coming happen. up in a textbook, but actually being a film of study seems unlikely. A little bit. And so, uh, but the conceit of this uh, show and also this section of the show is that we're teaching a class in which this is on the syllabus. And now we're going to augment this with additional films or additional readings. And through those augmentations, uh, sort of give the idea of what this course would look like or module of the course or just simple uh, se- seminar individual class would look like uh, if we were to do that. So, Dalton, you're the picker of the film, so I want you to go first. How would you expand the syllabus, and what would you do uh, to use uh, Henry as a teaching uh, tool? Well, I had a couple things I thought about, but as part of my prep work for this episode, uh, I caught up with the Faculty of Horrors discussion uh, of both this film and Zodiac. They had a a true crime-themed episode, and early in that episode, they drew the distinction, and I think, again, rightfully so, between true crime and horror. Uh, and And I just thought about that a lot because uh especially uh andrew suicide really made a point that i i fundamentally agree with that there is a different thing going on uh with what a film does and not not even necessarily film but in terms of just storytelling there, there's something very different in terms of i i think the response to a true crime story and the response to a horror story uh, so I, I, I want to explore that distinction, why it exists, why I think it's important when we're talking about uh, horror uh, and true crime. And again, uh, Big E on the eye chart, uh, obviously fictional versus non-fictional is a big part of this. Mm-hmm. But I think there's something more to it than that, because there's a difference in the way we're engaging with the things that keep us up late at night, I think. So that's what the class is going to be, is, is exploring that distinction between true crime, between horror, and where do those two roads meet, and what does that look like? And I think Henry is kind of a great ur-text for this. Obviously, uh, Henry Lee Lucas's myth is kind of predicated on his bullshittery. Uh, he just started copping to a bunch of cold cases to get his, uh, his clout in prison up, to get a little bit better treatment in prison. Um, and I think this film plays with that in a really interesting way, by showing us murders that we're not really even sure if Henry actually did or he's just fantasizing about. Yeah. There's a couple that I think early on it's clear he definitely did, but some of them are less clear. The cafe, so, like, they're alive and then they're dead, and so did he think about doing that? Yeah. What's the deal there? Yeah, yeah. yeah. One of those moments is sort of to make that explicit. Yeah, and I think it's really interesting to to use his brain, because it would be... Inaccurate, I think, to say that Henry is the protagonist of this film or that he's the narrator. Well, he's the protagonist, but he's not really a, a narrator per se. Again, we talked about fly on the wall uh, filmmaking, and I think that's very much what McNaughton's got going on here is trying to stay out of the way in terms of imposing a story on these events as much as possible. Um, so, again, I think using this as kind of the linchpin of the class is going to be really important. I think referring back to Henry a lot is going to be important in this class because sometimes we just use. Uh, when we make our fake classes, we kind of use the film as a jumping off point. But I think Henry is a, kind of going to be a big deal in this one. Uh, and I think the first film that we're going to pair with it is Monster, the Patty Jenkins film from 03, starring Charlie Theron uh, and Christina Ricci, uh, a film that was also a blind spot for me today uh, that I just caught up with. And I, I think Monster's another great one because, again, 
is another film about a real serial killer, uh, but one that hues much closer to a biopic uh, in ways that are kind of interesting. And again, a film that is very much not a horror film. So again, two films, one uh, categorizes horror, one I think easily to say, uh, uh, you know, adult, you know, theater matinee drama. Like Monster is very squarely in that studio serious drama mm-hmm. pocket. Uh, and I think it's a, a very good movie, but it's an extremely different movie from Henry. It is, uh, I, I didn't get to do as much research on Monster. It was a blind spot for me, so I just caught up with it this weekend. Um, and I didn't get to do a, as much uh, research on its production as I would have liked, but I know Charlize Theron was a producer on it, uh, and she was definitely a name in Hollywood at that time. So I think it had some studio backing behind it. Um, and it shows. Like, it's got some score choices that feel very studio y. But I think what is so interesting about Patty Jenkins' film versus McNaughton's film is that is a film that gets to let you have empathy for its uh, killer much more directly. And I mm-hmm. think that's fundamentally just has to do with how, uh, on film, how we process men doing violence to women versus women doing violence to men. Uh, you know, Henry Lee Lucas was an equal opportunity murder, uh, but as with many male murders, he did uh, gravitate more towards women. Uh, and uh, Eileen Warnos exclusively killed men. Uh, and, and I think exploring Eileen's story because of how much tragedy there is in her upbringing that we know about. Henry Lucas has uh, a lot of tragedy that is touched on in this film and is pretty much true. I mean, the stuff about the dress, his mom uh, being a sex worker and his his father uh, having no legs, like that, all, all that stuff is true. Uh, but we again, we don't get into... The specifics. We get yeah. some specifics on things that happen to Eileen that lead her on the road she ends up on. And it's a film that's really sympathetic to her and empathetic to her. And I, there are moments where I, I think the film pushes that. And in a deliberate choice. I don't think Patty Jenkins did it on accident. Like yeah. I think she, it pushes you towards having empathy for somebody really aggressively and then kind of pulls a rug out from under you in an interesting way quite a few times. Uh, I think it makes Eileen Warnus a little bit more likable than she's historically known to have been, but I think it helps in the film's favor. I, I, think I really it, do. And I it's not I, a historical document. It's a narrative film, and right. it's from Eileen's POV much more than I think Henry's, because Eileen's, as a character, has a lot of voiceover in Monster. I see. So I think the film is very much, gets to be in her corner a little bit, because it's letting her be an unreliable narrator in a little bit more explicit way than Henry lets Henry be a be a narrative voice, if that makes sense. I wonder what the pairing would be if, and I know I've talked about these movies on the show before, the Nick Broomfield documentaries of Eileen Mornos. Uh, yeah, I th- I th- I, if I had seen those Nick Broomfield documentaries, they probably would have made the syllabus. Yeah. Um, I know there's some interview, there's some books about uh, Henry Lee Lucas that might be worth, uh, depending mm-hmm. on what kind of class structure this has, it might be worth exploring or at least reading some selections from. But yeah, I, Eileen's complicated in those Nick Broomfield documentaries. Like, they're... She's going through a lot, yeah, y'all. She, she. I mean, look, I'm, I'm, I'm not going to be unfair and say, all right, well, because Eileen Warnos has, uh, you know, a different and equally sad backstory. I'm not going to be nicer to her than I am to male serial killers on the show. But those documentaries, I think, really they're pretty sympathetic because I mean, she, they, they show her to be a broken person. Yeah, but I think they did a number on her and made it harder for her to be a repentant person in yes. her, in her incarceration. And yeah. I think that's. And we've talked about that. I know a lot about those Broomfield documentaries, having not seen them, both from you and just, you know, other true crime uh, listening that I do and reading that I do. Uh, but th- those are probably an interesting place. But again, I I do want to stay in this field. Yeah. Of where do fiction and real life meet? 
Uh, so let's take what I take what I think is going to be another key cornerstone in this class. And it's Cropsy, mm. uh, the documentary yes. we discussed on the show way back, that really gets at this. Like, okay, here's where these true stories meet in the middle, because Cropsy is all about this urban legend uh, that's going around Jersey and the tri-state area in the 80s. Uh, about you know child murders and child kidnaps and escaped uh, you know uh, patients from uh, mental hospitals uh, and uh, disused mental hospitals in this area in Jersey um, and come to find out there were active child murderers is it multiple or is it just the one I can't remember uh, we don't know that's right we oh don't shit know. that's right we don't know yeah well go watch Cropsy to learn more but the point is the children of this neighborhood this this you know gaggle of youths who didn't all know each other it's just kind of neighborhood kids and you know kids go exploring out in the woods uh they all have this same urban legend the same boogeyman of cropsy and it's the story that these kids shared and the director is one of these kids and says you know i I know kids that i think probably had their lives saved by being more cautious because of this urban legend it's been about five years since i've Mm -hmm. seen this now but I, i remember that being an aspect of the documentary yeah uh and i think that's really interesting because that gets to this distinction between horror and true crime, right? True crime, I think, trains us to have our 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 heightened senses, our danger senses, a little bit more finely attuned. I think is is the place that fills it. Makes us think about the evil that is in the world, and I think uh, horror makes us think about the kind of high minded idea of, of evil and terror and fear and as kind of abstract concepts. And I think true crime forces us to look at it as much more concrete, less abstract concepts. And I think Cropsy f- occupies an interesting middle space between those two things. Absolutely. Uh, because again, a lot of our greatest terror stories, uh, whether they be monsters or, or people do come from inspirations of true crime. I mean, uh, there's plenty of folklorists will tell you that, uh, there's a good chance that our legends about uh, werewolves and vampires come from active serial killers at a time when we didn't understand the idea of somebody who would, you know, pick people off and do gross things to their bodies. Sexualized violence, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Uh, so let's go ahead and keep moving down the spectrum and go towards uh, American Psycho, uh, the wonderful film. Oh, my God, I can't think of the director of that film's name. Again, we are in week two of No Phone Gate. Mary. Yep, that's close. Karen. There, Mary Heron. Oh, hey, we as a team, we you know, got there. What's going to work? Teamwork. That's right, boys. Uh, Mary Heron's uh, really incredible film, uh, American Psycho, uh, and I think probably the best film on this list, uh, mm. including Henry. I'd say American Psycho is a little bit better. I agree. Uh, yeah. And I like it more than Monster as well. Uh, but I think American Psycho and maybe some select episodes from NBC's Hannibal uh, by Brian Fuller. Nice. Uh, I, I think both of these films being about fictional serial killers allows us to look at these stories about real serial killers and kind of see the differences and the nuances because I, I think Patrick Bateman and Hannibal Lecter represent very mystified serial killers. You know, Patrick Bateman and his insanity uh, is a much less organized killer than Hannibal Lecter and his very, like, pim proper supervillain uh, serial killer uh, style. But I think they both occupy an interesting space as fictional serial killers that can kind of help us look at how we respond to uh, actual serial killers. And again, none of these films are outright horror films. They are all kind of more thrillers and crime stories, but I think it's going to help us uh, engage with this idea where it is. Cause again, American psycho is typically called a horror film. And I think it's the one that is most a horror film out of all these films that we're discussing. So I think that's kind of a great ur text to say, okay, why is American Psycho definitely a horror film, and why is Henry 
only kind of a horror film. Uh, and, and I think that's going to lead to some really interesting conversations. And I think the very final place we can we should end uh, this class uh, is with, uh, and I think I've mentioned this on the show recently, but the most recent season of Mindhunter. Uh, obviously, mm. David Fincher's made quite a career of talking about serial killers, real and fictional. But I think Mindhunter, especially the second season, gets at the idea. Season two really is into the idea of the way the FBI had to sell uh, its behavioral analysis unit. Uh, once it kind of got its initial successes, it kind of had to sell itself to, uh, you know, national law enforcement agencies, uh, to other members of uh, political parties and, you know, trying to get clout. Uh, but also you see these characters just talking about the work they do in their private lives. And you get to see a myriad of reactions from different kind of secondary and tertiary characters and the way they respond to uh, these early FBI profilers. Again, this is based on John Douglas's book, uh, and if I was a more well-read person, I'd probably say we're going to have to read John Douglas's book, but I have not read it. I've so. read it. It's all right. Yeah, but I think it's probably worth discussing it for this class. Yeah. Uh, but again, I think Season 2 Mindhunter does a really good job at looking at why we as people are drawn to why you know again not everybody plenty of people find true crime abhorrent uh, as a field of like interest and study and i don't begrudge those people at all i think they're kind of right to some extent i think my head's a little cooked uh for liking it but I, you know the r- ways and reasons in which i engage with it have much more to do with a general fear of being alive <laughs> and i think that's fundamentally the final thing we get to right and hopefully mindhunter season two will help us discuss is the interest uh, and again, because the secondary and tertiary characters are either revolted by this work or fascinated by this work. And that is kind of the case of people who are interested in true crime, right? You're either revolted by it or deeply fascinated by it. Uh, and I, I think season two of Mindhunter is really concerned with knowing it's a show about true crimes and knowing that that's a conversation that we as a culture should be having. Why are we afraid of each other? Who's making us be afraid of each other? What are the real reasons of being afraid of each other? Where does this violence come from? Is it just us? It's probably just us, isn't it? Oh, we did this to ourselves. There's nobody to blame but each other. Um, so, yeah, th- there, there's some good stuff there. Uh, I, I know that's a whole lot of, of uh, assignment for this class, but I think it's going to be a productive conversation, if nothing else. I like it. I like it. Very, very good, Mr. Dalton Stewart. Well, hey, Mr. Arthur Gordon, uh, what do you think uh, you want to do to expand that syllabus? Yeah, so uh, I'm going to go with, uh, I'm always really intrigued by rating systems and Mm. and distribution and that element of it. And and so I think I would go at it from the angle of battling the MPAA or battling a ratings board or distribution, you know, because it's not just the rating system that wants people cut, but distributors like, hey, I'm not going to put your movie out there if it's got this in it. And that's always just an interesting discussion and, you know, really throws a wrench into tourship and things of that nature. And that's, you know, a fascinating thing to look at. So that's where I'd go at uh, this from. Uh, and I would start, you know, I'd start in the horror genre, I think, and I would go with American Psycho. Yeah. Uh, which, you know, has its battles, you know, the gore and the sex and all that element of it um, there. And I think obviously pairs well with Henry in, in a certain way. So I'm glad you brought that one up and I thought you might. Um, uh, but from there, I'm going to go back. I would actually screen the documentary, uh, this film, Not Yet Rated, yeah. uh, which really yeah. gets into the MPAA and looks at those ratings and the history and how that all works and the flaws in that system, the very major flaws in that system and the struggles and like the, the seemingly pedantic reasons some of these things exist as far as ratings or reasons things get rated the way they do. Mm. Uh, and then from there, I'm going to go and jump into some different genres to show it's not just, you know, a horror thing or a violence thing. I want to start with Clerks, Kevin Smith's Clerks, uh, which initially received an NC-17 rating based purely on sexual dialogue. 
There's wow. a lot of talk about sex and yeah, blowjobs. And... But there's none on screen. Nope. Yep. Not, not uh, a bit, but a, yeah, a lot of very frank dialogue about sex. Yeah, and, and I think it's just interesting, you know. Uh, and this isn't on the course, but I also think about the conjuring, mm. which is rated R just because of frightening imagery. It's just there's no language, scary. there's no gore, you know, it's just a it's very just spooky that movie. Scary, yeah. Yeah. Um, and so it's interesting to look at those. Uh, from the Clerks, I would jump back to Paul Verhoeven's RoboCop. Hell yeah, uh, Which is extremely violent yeah, and, and extremely bloody and extremely uh, uh, foul-mouthed. And uh, I'd go with that and look at that and how that was cut and the uh, issues there. Uh, the squibbiest squibs that ever did squib. <laughs> uh, and, and then from there, I would actually go back uh, to... Uh, I can't think of his name. I'm also blanking. But uh, Midnight Cowboy. Oh, I, yeah. I would look at that as well, which is uh, one... Had a lot of issues just because of the uh, sexual uh, elements of it, the homosexuality of it, um, which you know earned it, and I believe an X rating. It, actually, it was X rated. Yep. Uh, the first, I believe, X rated film to win the Best Picture. You know, and so it's kind of got that history. It's a very interesting discourse around that, and you know, Ebert was always championing having another rating besides yeah. X to for you know adults only, like A rating or whatever, uh, to say this is for adults. It's adult content. It's not for minors or kids. But it's not uh, pornographic. Right? Yeah. yeah. It was uh, Henry and uh, the thief, the cook, the wife, and her lover. And I yep. think there's a third film for Time me up, time me down. That's, yeah, the Pedro Almodovar film. Yeah. yeah. Those are the three that kind of, much like Gremlins and uh, Temple of Doom, yep. get bandied about for PG 13. Yeah. Th- those are the three that people bring up for NC 17. Yeah. Becoming a thing. And that's, you know, and, and there's that pedantic thing because it's, it's called NC 17, yeah. which sounds a lot more alarming or threatening than just A or yeah. M or, you know, whatever. Yeah. And so I think it's an interesting discussion. Uh, to be had to really look at and delve into when you're talking about film and production. Excellent, excellent. I think Arthur and I are teaching the same class, so we're teaching it in parts, because I was also really fascinated with the sort of censorship background and history of the film. And so uh, there are three other, or three films total in this module or part of it before I let Arthur take over and uh, talk about the censorship stories of individual films. But I want to talk about just the rating systems themselves and how they exist. And so... Uh, the the first film I would choose is The Blue Angel from 1930, uh, Joseph von Sternberg, starring Marlena Dietrich. It is one of those pre-code uh, German release films, but also had an English track released in the United States. Although, historically and uh, critically, the German, the German uh, language uh, version is much more um, well thought of than. That's the, typically how it goes. Yeah. I mean, it just seems like Dietrich and others are struggling with their English dialogue, yeah. which you know yeah. checks out. Uh, so it does seem to be better to watch that with subs. Uh, and again, that is part of the American film story because it was released in the United States, and it was one of those movies that sort of moved us into really giving the production code the uh, teeth because the production code had been existing since twenty two. The Hayes office had already been created, and so uh, there were there was already something about that in the water, but it really was not being all that regulated, and. So so that's the first place I would begin uh, with it. I would also, you know, the readings are going to accompany. They're basically just going to be press releases and, uh, you know, historical documents. Yeah. I do want to mention I have a little piece of the uh, be carefuls and don'ts and do's of the uh, the don'ts and be carefuls of the uh, production code. Are you want to of the wanna, original Hayes code? Yeah, yeah. You want to hear this? Oh, please. Okay. So uh, resolve that those things which are included in the following list shall not appear in pictures produced by members of this association, irrespective of the manner in which they are treated. Number one, pointed profanity it gives a list of particular profanities all of which are um blasphemies to the deity um licentious or suggestive nudity okay uh in fact or in silhouette so no just no nudity or any letrous or licentious notice by the other characters in the picture 
Uh, legal traffic of drugs. Okay, hold on. So not o- no nude bodies, period. Right. And they really made it clear to underline that. N- but not only that, you can't imply nudity, and you can't have people remark upon each other's bodies. Correct. Okay. Wow. And very it, specific up top. Illegal traffic and drugs, which is probably not shocking. Um, yeah, that's that's makes sense. Um, any inference of sex perversion. So yeah, uh, Puritans. White slavery. <laughs> Miscegenation. <laughs> Oh. Uh, sex hygiene or venereal diseases. Scenes of actual childbirth, in fact, or silhouette. Children's sex organs. Ridicule that's, of ridicule. That's the first thing that I've heard that I've been like, okay, that makes sense. You shouldn't have that, yeah. Yeah, that's bad. Uh, ridicule of the clergy. Uh, willful offense to any nation, race, rule. or creed. They didn't do a great job with that one, did they? Hey, Warner Brothers. That sounds, yeah, it sounds like they didn't. Nobody listened to that rule. Special care in the following. So those are the don'ts. Those are the definitely don'ts. Yeah. Here's where you have to be careful. Yeah. Use of the flag. Uh huh. International relations. Well, that makes sense. That that one actually does kind of make a little bit of sense. Don't start a war. Yeah. Please don't. Yeah. Ar- Sony. Arson. The use of firearms. Wait. Okay, keep going. <laughs> and it's a crazy list. Theft, robbery, safe cracking, dynamiting of trains, mines, buildings, etc. Yep. Having in mind the effect which a too detailed description of these may have upon the moron. <laughs> Don't teach people how to make bombs in your movie. Because of morons. Yes, because specifically because of morons. Because morons. I like that even in the 20s we were calling out uh, people who are going to be too into Fight Club very early. <laughs> Uh, brutality and possible gruesomeness, whatever that means. Very vague. Technique of committing murder by whatever method, methods of smuggling, third-degree methods, actual hangings or electrocutions as legal punishment for crime. Uh, okay. Sim- that's a good, see, that's a good rule. Yeah. Be careful about sympathy for criminals, attitude toward public characters and institutions, sedition, apparent cruelty to children of animals. Uh branding of people or animals, the sale of women, or the use of a woman selling her virtue, rape or attended rape, first night scenes. These are all be careful, be by careful. the way, not don'ts. Man and women in bed together, <laughs> deliberate seduction of girls, the institution of marriage, be careful. <laughs> Surgical yeah. operations, be careful. <laughs> the use of drugs, be careful. Titles or scenes having to do with law enforcement or law enforcement officers. Huh. And number 25, lastly, excessive or lustful kissing, particularly when one character or the other is a heavy. Ooh. What's that mean? Bad I'm guy? Not, oh, uh, yeah. Does that, mean, yeah. Does that mean villain, protagonist? Yeah, surely it means bad guy. Or at guy. least pr- maybe the person applying pressure. I guess. Or a fatty. No fatty. Yes. <laughs> no, no. Yeah, these are some buck rules, man. These no, are. Because the kissing rule is what, three seconds or something? something? I mean, what it ends up becoming, yeah, yeah. As a rule of thumb, but it's not written in the actual code. Yeah. But that's sort of the uh, the sort of standard procedure at that Kiss, point. then quickly cut away. Yes. And then come back for the end of the kiss. Yes. Well, and I would... then insinuate a night of passionate lovemaking. Yeah. Yeah, you can leave a... Searchlights. Yeah, you can show a... Or trains and tunnels. gun in a holster. Fireworks going off. There's a really good train and tunnels joke in uh, season three of Big Mouth, by the way. Okay. Uh, Big fan of that. Is that the new season? Yeah, it's a new one. Yeah, it's very good. That's the first movie. It's a bullshit list. By and large. It's wild. Buck wild. So, you know, that that historical document itself and its analysis would be fun for class. It'd be a fun class discussion, I would think, uh, with examples. Moving into the... uh, 
the, the sort of disillusion of the production code and the beginning of the rating system mm-hmm. with Jack Valenti in the 1960s, I think uh, Michelangelo Antonioni's uh, Blow Up would be the film to look oh, yeah. at, which was a film that was unable to pass a production code because of nudity and because of violence and you know because well because they're not they're neither careful nor do they stick to the do's and don'ts yeah, baby. of that particular film or that particular set of rules and uh, so that is a movie that was um, bought by MGM to distribute in the United States and because they could not get. Um, because as a member of the association, they couldn't release the picture because they hadn't had approval. They used a subsidiary company and released it anyway. Hell yeah. Which was, again, the sort of overall toothlessness that had, had sort of re-reared its head with the production code. And so watching that film and then the creation of the the G, PG, and uh, R systems, uh, which later ended up adding X, uh, that would be a, an interesting movement there. And then finally getting on over to Henry Portrait of a Serial Killer and the release of the NC-17 rating. And so just sort of historically contextualizing those three major movements in American film. And then, of course, conversations about the video nasties, although Henry's not a video nasty, Evil Dead is, and it's of similar ilk and of similar production history, and talking about what was going on in the U.K. as well, a little bit as a sort of a... I was thinking about that video nasties mm-hmm. uh, term. I, rem- yeah, I remember that being part of, yeah, the, the direct-to-video boom and, you know, that getting around the MPAA. And there were tears in that. There were movies that you could have as a uh, video uh, store owner that would get you prosecuted. And then there were movies that you could own that would simply be uh, seized if they found you with them. And then there was uh, a- another list. Do you of know movies. any of those films off the top of your head? Off the top of my head, no. Damn, too bad. And then there is another list of movies that kind of got seized anyway that they weren't on any list, but people were seizing them. Yeah. And so that just because the titles were sometimes objectionable, you know, and uh, you know, a flesh for Frankenstein is one of them uh, for that. So, <laughs> good title. It, well, it's, it sounds like something. Um, it's a good title. I, I don't know anything about the movie, so it may be exactly what it sounds like. It's a good title. So <laughs> I stand by it. Um, but anyway, that would be the sort of ratings history uh, approach that I would want to use. That. Uh, r- before we move into sort of full-on censorship, like the kind of uh, syllabus that Arthur's put together, I would maybe augment his syllabus with maybe Last Temptation of Christ. Mm-hmm. Uh, which was a pretty controversial film. Oh, yeah. Yeah, they didn't yeah, follow any of those do's and don'ts, did they? Yeah, well, that I mean, it was just an R-rated movie. Yeah, it was oh, one of those theme park was... films, if I remember correctly. <laughs> it is. It's, it, yeah, it's just like a ride um, <laughs> in Sunday school with sex. Um, anyway. Uh, Good times. Good times had by all. So there you go, dear listener. Your syllabus just got longer. I think now it's time to get down to business. It's business. I thought an interesting place for us to start was going to be the NC-17, but we've covered that ground thoroughly. So let's uh, jump over to something that we talked about a little bit earlier. Uh, Just unreliable narrators real quick. I think it might be fun to tease that out a little bit more. Uh, As I alluded to, uh, the early half of this film does a really good job of kind of setting us in a... An unknowability, you know, what is Henry's interior fantasy life? What are his memories and recollections? Um, So it it does, again, much like Patrick Bateman and uh, Mary Heron's American Psycho, we play around with this idea of like, okay, we know this person's bad. We know they're doing murders, but how much are they doing? How many murders are they doing? And how culpable are they even for the ones they're doing if they are having this difficult time discerning reality? Which, this is the uh, representation of the historical fact that Henry Lucas uh, claimed to have killed over 600 people or some ridiculous number like that. He went down for 11, uh, and I think the 11 that they actually 
put on him were pretty definitively his. I think he actually was able to name body locations. I mean, he may stuff. have killed more than that, but he didn't kill no six hundred people. The, the, the I think the agreed upon number is probably forties. Wow. Uh, is I think what a, a lot of criminologists landed on wow. for him. That's still fucking a lot of people. Yeah, yeah that's bad, that dude. Uh, but yeah, no six hundred, obviously. But again, I think McNaughton makes a good call here, right? Uh, to to engage with that part of the the legend around Henry Lee Lucas, mm-hmm. like there is an unknowability there. Mm-hmm. Um, and again, I think that first half of the film does a great job of establishing that unknowability by giving us those little hints of unreliable narratorship. Uh, and then again, by kind of priming us to be deathly afraid for Becky, to be mm-hmm. absent from the moment, be- from the second Becky shows up on screen, you know she's dead. You know there's no way she's making out of this movie alive. There's not a fucking chance. And it's the saddest thing. And it's the yeah. thing that like kept me in the movie when I it like was hard for me well, to her find little a little daughter back home. I know, it's dude. So it, it was so. And again, it's that's the thing that helped me find a foothold in the moments where I was like having a hard time with this film. Which is why I'm glad Arthur brought up Becky's performance so much because I'd kind of forgotten about it. I was having so much fun talking about Rooker and just the the low fineness of this film. But Becky is is a big foothold for for us as an audience. The closest thing we have to an audience survey, yeah. I think, because Henry is so unreliable. But I think, again, to make the case for that first half that Arthur didn't love, I think making us afraid of Henry before Henry and Becky have scenes together is really important. But just kind of in a larger context, how do you guys feel about unreliable narrators just as a, as a device? Uh, good examples, you know, how, what uh, effect does it bring? I just kind of want to talk about that for a second. I mean, A, I love them. I, yeah, I'm a fan I, too. I love unreliable narration uh, because I do like I like I like a film that makes me work a little bit, and it is yeah. um, a sort of non Hollywood methodology, and uh, that's a good thing as well. Um, one of my favorite incidences of it is is kind of just a twist. This is a spoiler, and I mm-hmm. think I may have shared this before on the show. I definitely talk about it all the time in my classes when I talk about unreliable narration. Is the Denzel Washington movie Fallen? Good movie, yep. Uh, yep. Wh- which opens with uh, Denzel Washington's voiceover narration. Let me tell you about the time I nearly died. And the movie is about a demon possession that sort of transfers from body to body, and it's and, you know it's a serial killer, so it's on topic with what we're doing right now. And Elias uh, Cotius is the original killer, but the body moves around everywhere. John Goodman's in the movie, um, but the rules of the demon are that it can only travel so many feet without a body, and so what ends up happening is the demon's inside. Um, Denzel Washington's partner, John Goodman's body. He lures him to a cabin far, far away. He kills John Goodman, but he has secretly poisoned himself already. And so, uh, though the demon gets in Denzel, Denzel dies, and the demon leaves. And uh, so, it goes to the demon vision, which is, you know, very, very stylized. Real Sam Raimi hours. Yeah, yeah. yeah, Moves into that, and uh, all of a sudden, the voiceover narration comes back, and it's Denzel's voice. says, remember, guys, this is the story about the time I nearly died. And the eye is not Denzel. The eye is Azazel, the demon. Uh, and I love that. It's great. You know? I mean, it just, it, it, it's just a, a movie uh, technique that sort of makes you question your initial viewer experience, and then you have to watch it again. And I do think that one of the great values of um, unreliable narration is that it does sort of require and invest you to go ahead and watch a film a second time. Mm-hmm. And uh, that is... That's a market quality. It, it, it nest eggs a lot of your themes for you, mm-hmm. right? It allows you to be a little bit more subversive, I think, in your storytelling. You don't have to. You get to let your subtext hide a little bit more. Yeah, yeah. And so I'm a big fan. Yeah, I, I agree. I, I think it's a very interesting uh, dynamic 
to uh, help keep you on your toes and, and add some fun whimsy to a story and really kind of keep you guessing. Uh, I, I think uh, one I think about is Jennifer's body. Mm, uh, yeah. Amanda Seyfried in that movie, uh, which opens with her, I believe, in the uh, Institute. Uh, and she's recounting these things that happen and they're all beyond belief and whether it's true or not, you know, is up to contest, but I, I think it's an interesting dynamic there. Uh, I also think of uh, Kaiser Soze. I think of uh, Usual uh, Suspects. Yeah, SpongeBob SquarePants as Kaiser Soze. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Um, and, and so uh, I, I think that's another one where you, it, it plays it pretty much to a T, and I, yeah. I think that's a textbook example of it, and I think it works well because it does make you want to go back and revisit what you've just seen to see if it, it works or not, and if it's, you know, bearing the lead. Or, um, and so I think, you know, when it's done well, uh, it's a lot of fun and adds a really interesting dynamic to the story. Uh, as I mentioned earlier, I, I listened to uh, Faculty Poor discuss this film, and uh, mm-hmm. man, uh, Andrew Subasati reminded me to use my uh, sociology cap from time to time, which is yes. always nice to be reminded to do. Uh, she talked a little about Emil Durkheim, uh, one of the, the early big names in, in sociology, uh, a guy who's kind of known for his structural functionalism, so one of these social theorists who's really into this idea that everything serves a function within society there are no uh there are no misused or extra pieces everything serves a function Uh, and so he was he was a guy that really looked to crime as something that number one shows us where the boundaries are number two is the the one thing we can all agree upon but also it exists to show us where our shortcomings are show us things that are broken you know he's not just talking about murders right he's talking about drug dealing uh, he's talking about uh, vice of all kinds, talking about riots and these pressure relief valves for society. But I think another interesting way to look at society, obviously, is, you know, your conflict theorists. You know, the big umbrella being your marks. Uh, there's plenty of other conflict theorists throughout the history of, you know, social theory. And I think crime gets kind of interesting when we talk about class. And I, I don't just mean like financial class, but also when we start talking about, you know, these uh, matrices uh, of oppression, like the different factors that go into somebody's social power in society. And obviously, uh, serial killers are primarily male. Uh, we mostly study the white ones, but there are plenty of uh, serial killers of color throughout the history of the world. Look at the Grim Sleeker, Sleeper yeah. documentary. Well, and, and again, this is because serial killers tend to murder within their own race or ethnic group, and uh, people of color tend to be considered less, less dead by police departments. Exactly. So this is where getting into class gets interesting, right? Because we get to talk about the Grim Sleeper, sure, but also Henry Lee Lucas versus somebody like your BTKs, your Dahmers, your Bundys, even your John Wayne Gacy, even yeah. your Gacy's, but well, your guys that live double middle class double lives, right? Versus your people like Eileen Warnos, who I mentioned earlier, and your Henry Lee Lucases, who are homeless drifters, who don't just kill because they have a sexual compulsion to. Although there is some aspect of that, right? For uh, Henry Lee Lucas, I'm pretty sure that's it's just an efficient way to tie the knot. Sure, exactly. Sometimes you just want the money. And it's easier to, you know, have no loose ends. Exactly. It's easier to tie the knot off. And other times, you're so possessed by blind rage because of, you know, trauma and brain imbalances and whatever else motivates somebody to kill. But I think the component of serial killers who are often motivated by convenience of access to finances are really interesting because they are hurricanes. Uh, Henry, again, as portrayed by Michael Rooker, and this is not a true crime podcast, so we will stick to Rooker's depiction, but I think... He's so interesting because, you know, there's a TV repair shop heist, which is the moment where, like, class is kind of most at the forefront. Because even the TV place they go to is secondhand TVs. And yeah. Upon, this guy, the guy they're buying from probably is selling stolen goods. Yeah, this is hot stuff. He's yeah. a fence. Yeah. I, that was my impression that I got, too. 
But again, like when Henry enters into any space uh, where like when he's talking to the older woman with this nice fur coat and her cute little dog, anytime uh, that Henry is in close proximity to like any other social class, like it is very noticeable. Uh, but again, the, the ways in which Henry is just kind of going through life and is not looking for the kill until it's too late. Like it's really interesting the way that Rooker plays the the violence behind Henry's eyes. It's it's yeah. very great acting. I mean, it is really masterful stuff. I think. Uh, and again, the TV repair shop I think is a great moment. We talked about this off air, but you know he's going to leave. He's going to walk away from this moment, and the it's it is the continued like disrespect that allows him to put his foot on the gas. So again, I think just. Looking at crime and talking about class, especially if we're talking about class as it relates to serial murder, I think is really, really interesting stuff. And I think worth interrogating uh, the trauma that happens to people in the margins of society, the protections that the working poor uh, don't typically receive, uh, the just the, the ways in which that complicates a human being's life. And the way that complicates the criminality of a uh, of a serial offender, regardless of like what their offenses are, I, I think these are all really interesting things to examine. So again, I, I, one of the things I like most about Henry, right? Because even after Henry Portrait of a Serial Killer, the big serial killer movie is Silence of the Lambs. This fictional rich doctor who eats people is decadent. You know, we get Hannibal of you know the twenty teens, and he's making the absolute highest luxury foods imaginable out of human beings. And, uh, you know, Henry Lucas will just put you in luggage and throw you off a bridge. Mm-hmm. And, uh, yeah, I think that's interesting. I just yeah. wanted to ramble about that for a little bit. I don't know if anybody else has any thoughts on these ideas. I don't know if I have anything on, on that particular, but I did want to think about one other sort of pretty significant aspect of the film, and that is the use of home video mm-hmm. um, and that sort of mediated view and the way in this which— This gets us back to the voyeurism we talked about a little bit earlier. Yeah. Films, uh, you know, indicting you for your voyeurism. You're watching, you know, these things take place. And we see Otis over and over again repeatedly watching the sort of murder of the yeah. family, which is— The worst murder of the film. Yeah, by far. Yeah. By far. I mean, when that son comes in— I Holy mean, shit, dude. Yeah, I, I, my, my tears were close. I was already— that, that I was yeah. already donezo with that I mean, scene. Yeah, it's yeah. one of the most upsetting things my, I've ever seen. Definitely. My greatest fear. I hated that fucking scene, dude. Yeah, yeah I, I hated it so yeah. much. And McNaughton— is is so smart, man. Like if if we'd had to watch that scene unfold, like in like we were there, I don't know that it could. Be, I I legitimately think the film would just go off the rails at that yeah, point. I think I, it would have been too much. But, but again, you're right. I, Using that video screen as an intermediary almost makes it more. Go ahead, Arthur. I was going to say I think it'd be less effective. You think so? I think the home tape makes it more effective. Well, that's the thing that I think is interesting, right? There's yeah. a remove, and I think that's what to Dustin's point. There's a remove there that's complicated. Yeah, it, well, it's a level of mediation. It's an in betweenness yeah. of. Uh, so you know, you're watching the film, and that's obviously mediated because you're watching a film on a TV screen. But you're when you're watching a TV screen on the TV screen, yeah. it does create a, yet another sort of screen, yeah. a membrane, another barrier between yourself and the objects of representation. And uh, so it becomes a really sort of interesting dialectic that's at work there. It's like, okay, well, obviously this is fictional, but in this fictional world is real, and in this fictional world they're watching these real-life murders, and you're watching these— Three uh, right turns make a left. 
Yeah, yeah it and, almost becomes more real because there's so many levels of artifice. It brings you back and brings you back and brings you back. Uh, a movie I was thinking about was um, uh, Haroon Faraki's uh, Videograms of a Revolution. I don't know this. Uh, which is a great little film from 1993. It's mostly found television footage, sometimes filming the TVs themselves. Sometimes it's actual getting videotape from uh, Romanian television. I remember what nation it was in um, during the fall of, uh, the, of the Soviet state mm. in Romania. And so Ceausescu is awful. Uh, is a monster, yeah, uh, and uh, just an absolute thug and a villain, and so uh, it, it basically it, it, it encapsulates and follows the sort of beginning rise, the spring of that moment, and the fall, which ends in him and his wife being executed. Wow! On television. Wow! Uh, it, if I recall correctly, we don't actually see the execution itself in the film, mm-hmm. although the execution was broadcast. Wow. On television, oh, but we do see their bodies before they're shot and after. And weirdly, the way in which that sort of indicts a public, because yeah. now he's a bad guy who was he was tried and found guilty, yeah. and you know that was you know the the capital punishment that they used in that particular moment. But also the sort of bloodthirstiness of all of that. But yet, because it is you're watching the movie of the movies. Even though it's real life, those degrees of remove are at work there in a really kind of an interesting way. Well, and I think that speaks to Arthur's point because I think Arthur, you're right to to some extent. I think there is a certain amount of extra effect that that removal has, right? I think yeah. you, you're right to some extent. There's an emergence there in that home movie element, especially the way he shoots it, yeah. mm-hmm. which feels very, I guess, authentic to how you would shoot a home movie in that yeah. manner. It's very stationary, and he drops the camera. And we don't see what happens off camera. Like those elements of it feel very immersive. Uh, and so I think to me, that's what makes it so much more effective because I think if he had filmed that, um, you know, so that we're sort in that moment, yeah, yeah, we'd have a lot more uh, moments to be like, oh, the editing's off. And so that takes you out of it. Or the, you know, like you mentioned, the window in the background takes you out of the whatever's happening. Uh, and I think to just be able to put the camera there and let it, them do their thing puts that mental brings down that mental wall in your head that's a very about this is cinema and this is real and then there's a certain sort of badge of authenticity or of um truth that sort of goes along with those forms of filmmaking that videography yeah sure this Uh, is why we get so much use of like cctv in the early seasons of the wire right mm -hmm. we're trying to go for that authenticity we go for non-cinematic film filming techniques and so yeah like again the sort of standard procedure of uh, realism uh, throughout much of uh, the sort of beginning moments of document cinema verite mm-hmm. especially is black and white yeah and uh, yes color film and color stock were available color television existed in those times in the 1960s although color televisions were fairly rare but those films and movies and uh, you know made for television programs were shot in black and white and it came, became sort of this weirdly even though it's more false and it is um demonstrates the device it 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 it, it speaks back to the apparatus mm-hmm. itself that's it's recording this but it does sort of um give greater credibility to the fact that this is being recorded as it was being recorded yeah. and so i mean yeah that 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 vhs usage there is is, is fascinating to me and i think it's used uh, in uh, american psycho oh yeah, yeah it know. is well in another film i i left it off my syllabus because it is kind of 
in similar territory, and I've talked about it recently, but uh, Funny Games, which mm. I think I did talk yep. about last week, actually. Yeah. I mean, it does the same thing with the, the, the rewinding scene, right? Is mm-hmm. the scene where Michael Hanukkah is, again, most indicting us as viewers, saying, no, 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 nobody gets free here. This is, we're going to do this real life. Good guys don't prevail. And also, sometimes the good guys are obnoxious, really rich yuppies, uh, which, it, man, he does not like the, mm-hmm. <laughs> he does not like the family in that movie, which I think is interesting. But, yeah, I don't know. As Arthur made that point, I, I am kind of wrestling more with why I think, and I'm, maybe I will go to Funny Games as an example of the the assaults that take place in the living room in that film, where we are using film techniques, right? Yeah. Are so, but they're not flashy. And I think what I was thinking of is, you know, McNaughton in in his DP are so restrained throughout Henry, like especially I think of those scenes where they're like having their fish dinner uh, and drinking old style, right? It is very very dingy apartment that feels very real feels lived in and there's just, there is such a immediacy to simple scenes of the, these three people just having dinner mm-hmm. and uh yeah. I, I, I that's what i kind of thought about with if we had tried to be in a scene where like we're watching henry film what's going on uh that that's where i you know i, I start thinking about maybe being too close to, to the events to, to actually even be able to palette it but you're right. I mean, that using that camera does put us in this weird you know, commenting back on the screen, on the device, and it's, it's the real. It's a real cinematic Ouroboros. Anytime you're uh, you're dealing with screens within screens, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, last thing I have is I have a thesis. I think I want okay. to put forward a, a feminist thesis for this film mm. that this is perhaps one of the best examples of um, proper um, subjectivity and personhood being assigned to female victims in the slasher movie because of the character of Becky. Yeah. Because most of the time we don't really get to live with a victim in the way that we do. And it does very much humanize her. It does very much make it a tragedy what's going to happen. And it also, because of that failure to romanticize Henry as a character, um, that the film puts us in a position to say, these men are preying on women and others, of course. Yeah. Um, but these, these, these men are, are, are real predators here. And it is sort of it, not making them simply just objects that are being used, but that they are real women with real stories, that she's got the baby Lurleen, which is a crazy name, um, somewhere back home, wherever it's Bucksnord, Arkansas, wherever she's from. And uh, that that's Bucksnord is not a real place in Arkansas, I don't think. Not as far as I know, but also wouldn't be surprised. There is a Toad Suck, Arkansas. We'll say Toad Suck. Um, right. um, back in Toad Suck, Arkansas, not far from Conway. And uh, that she's, again, I think in a way really well-rounded. And then when she becomes a victim as well, it is off screen and it is sort of just um, as a matter of course. Perfunctory. Perfunctory, yeah. yeah. A and matter of course, because as I alluded to, yeah, we knew Becky was going to die. No, for sure. But you're yeah. right. There is that matter of, of, and of course, now we're here. And yeah. that what her death does, I think, is speak back to all the other women's deaths, and really kind of all the deaths. Yeah, because McNaughton, and again, I think he helps himself by using really static camera setups to mm-hmm. film the deceased women. Uh, he helps himself kind of avoid some gaze problems, yeah. I think, by yeah. using that static camera. But he is so good at avoiding gaze. In in photographing naked bodies, um, and you're right, it does make us reflect on some really upsetting shit we've seen throughout this film. Mm-hmm. And again, I've given props to dead, dead actressing. Uh, there's always, as far as we can tell, 
Uh, it seems like being a dead female body is going to be a gainful employment for many years to come in the world of cinema and television. Uh, and we don't talk about it a lot, but I talked about it recently on the show with The Body of Jane Doe, which I think is a great film. Uh, the actresses that are photographed as Henry's victims in this movie are are, are great. I mean, mm-hmm. they're compelling in their deadness in a way that I'm still thinking about, dude. I watched this movie. It's been a while since I've watched it. I'm, it weighs on me yeah. in ways that I did not expect it to. And I think you're right. That final scene with Becky does using that device that we've gone a while without, right? As Henry is lugging the suitcase to the car, we hear the sounds of struggle. And it's making us remember these other times that they've that the films use this device. I think you're yeah. absolutely right. I mean, because I think about it, and I, you know, you can look at like a Nightmare on Elm Street movie yeah. or even Halloween. I mean, what do we really know about Laurie Strode other than she's a good babysitter insofar as she's responsible and she's kind of the mm-hmm. good girl yeah. of her bunch. Mm-hmm. But, I mean... I don't really know anything of her inner life, of her hopes, of her dreams. I don't know anything about her hobbies, what she's good at, you know, her history. Mm-hmm. It's just that, you know, she's a kid. She's got parents. She babysits. That's it. And, and, and you know, and again, she's a very strong final girl. And, it, and the, the Laurie Strode mythos sort of increases over time over the course of the films. But she really is just an object that sort of, you know, wrestles back her objectivity by attacking back and, you know, repenetration and all that stuff that goes on, the the, the psychosexual readings of those films. But, again, the sort of slate of victims in A Nightmare on Elm Street yeah. or a Friday the 13th. Well, it's something or, that gets us away from Psycho, you know, where yeah. we start in 1960 yeah. with Marion Crane being a super well-rounded, really interesting character, spending the first half of the movie with her, and then by 1986 we've got a slasher f- as a well-established genre and we've stopped we've been desensitized and a nerd and again we've it, this is the year we're talking about on-screen violence and uh, it's important to state that every once in a while even i get my old man hat on and i'll be like oh pictures shows these days fucking no the science is there on-screen violence doesn't make people violent it's mm-hmm. the, i i've got to give props to the social scientists out there we've talked about in this episode already the science out there it doesn't make people do shit, and we got to acknowledge that. However, I think we as a cinema-going culture by 1986 are super desensitized mm-hmm. to this kind of stuff. And uh, I think you're right, Dustin, that it is good that this movie came along when it did, even if it wasn't widely seen, that it, filmmakers were seeing it. Mm-hmm. And that's important. Yeah. Because when uh, filmmakers are challenging each other and saying, think about what we're making these days, and saying, is this really where we want to be going? Is this the, you know, think about the stories you're telling. Yeah, I think it's really powerful stuff. Yeah, for sure, for sure. Are there any other sort of big uh, thematic uh, analytical threads that we want to tease out uh, mm. regarding Henry? No, I... I, I <laughs> regarding Henry. Oh, yeah, starring Jesus. a Harrison Ford. <laughs> I, I did not make that joke. That I know, but... You made that joke. I, my head made it for me, and I'm happy for it. Okay. Uh, yeah, it's a weird movie, dude. Uh, yeah. I don't know that I will ever watch this again. Well, that actually brings up an interesting question, Dalton. What's um, that? Is it a one-timer? A uh, shelf or trash. Oh. What do you do with Henry, portrait of a serial killer? <sighs> no, I don't... Mm. Mm. You're always uh, going to know mm. one weirdo who's got this on their shelf. That's yeah. what I'm going to say. If you're in the film and you have friends that are in the film, you will probably have one horror hor- uh, aficionado that has this on deck. Um, if not... It's pretty easy to find streaming lately. I feel like it's almost always streaming somewhere, yeah. and that might have to do with just, you know, it's made as much money as it's ever going to make, so now yeah. they're freely giving out rides. Right. Uh, so, no, I, I don't think you you need to have this one on your shelf, but I will say, if you're like myself and Dustin and Arthur, and you have put a downright uh, obscene 
uh, Netherlands amount of red in your brain. Uh, if, if you were the, the inside of your brain looks like a red light district because of all the gore you've seen, Henry's a movie you need to watch. Yeah. That was a weird, uh, uh analogy. I went with Arthur. I, I don't want to walk down that street in Amsterdam. No, no, I know. Well, I'd... the one that's inside Dalton's head. No, <laughs> oh, Jesus. Uh, yeah, no, there is a hostel. There. Freddy Krueger's playground. <laughs> it's very wholesome. I assure Jeepers you. Everybody is very friendly. Uh, anyway, it's that movie. My point is, if you've seen a lot of film violence, uh, Henry is a film that you should consider having on your watch list. Yeah. Probably not a shelfer, but I will say, of all the films I've not put on the shelf lately, this is the one that I would say is still the most like important. I I I, I don't call many movies we watch on this show important. I think this is one that I would make that distinction for. So, I, yeah, yeah. I, not necessarily shelfable because it's pretty limited interest. I feel like, but I I think if you are into film at all, but especially if you're into genre cinema or horror cinema, you're gonna have you need to do this one. It's it's important. You, you, your brain needs to be thinking about these considerations. Very good, very good. Well, hey Arthur, what do you think? Shelf or trash on Henry Portrait of a Serial Killer? Oh man, this is a tough man. one. It really is. Um, I think I'm just gonna ever so lightly put it on top of the trash bin. Um, I don't know. I mean, just for me, I don't feel like I gained a lot from this one. Um, I don't know. That, I mean, I I think there are things that are very interesting to me, mm. and like the the home movie scene. I think that sequence is very interesting to study and, and kind of look at the psychology of it on a audience. Like you know, that discussion we had, I think is very interesting. Um, and so there are moments of it that I do find fascinating. That last half hour, I think, is money. I, I really do. But I, I I don't know that I would recommend this one. I mean, to Dalton's point, I mean there are caveats, you know. True crime horror stuff like that. I think it's you know probably want to see it, but for me generally, I'd say trash lightly. Very good, very good. Um, I'm also going to lightly trash it, but with some similar kinds of caveats as Dalton has made. This is a movie that um, even as a film studies instructor or professor or a person who's you know a film head, it as an if, if you're if you're looking at it in this sort of professional light of you know I'm film studies professor, right? If that's the thing that you're doing, I would still say. It's something you'd want to put in the uh, department holdings, but you wouldn't want to have it at home. You don't need to have it at home. It's not a movie that you need to have immediate yeah. quick access, but you want to know where it is and where it can be yeah. found. So I, I am saying trash, but I am not saying don't ever watch it again, don't ever have access to it, don't um, you know, you know, set it into space and jettison it into the sun kind of thing, which we've said before about films. Uh, but yes. uh, this is not that, but it's still not that rewatchable. It's, no. It's it, it's not even that seminal. Yeah, I mean it's it's important in not for, but not for historical reasons. It, I mean all the his, historicity of it we've gotten into with the rating shit. Mm -hmm. As far as yeah, it's historicity as like influential on cinema. No, I don't I, I think I'd, I'd rather watch the cook the thief his wife and her lover. Yeah, I I feel like you could probably I'm sure there's a handful of directors from the 80s and 90s who would go, "No, I saw Henry and it totally changed my like my philosophy on filmmaking. I'm sure there's some people out there, but I, I, I get what you're saying. It's not hugely influential in terms of like style or anything. Right. Yeah. So, I mean, it is an interesting curio. It is, a, it is sort of um, what you might even call an excursus from the rule. 
So it's one of those things where you're like, uh, an argument I'm making in my dissertation. Here's a weird example. Okay. So uh, I'm talking about the the martial arts film and the way it's sort of this copying that happens and sort of reproduction mm-hmm. and trying to catch lightning in a bottle again with mm-hmm. the with the figure of Bruce Lee, but and which uh, does things to uh, elide or at least minimize or flatten racial, political, and uh, gender distinctions mm-hmm. uh, in ways that are meaningful. That that's sort of part of the process. But there are Again, sort of outliers. There are anomalous uh, examples, and one of those is Maya Darren's uh, Meditation on Violence, mm. uh, which is an experimental film in which he uh, records um, some Tai Chi forms and Shaolin forms of a, of a martial artist uh, and uh, uses the camera and uses the sort of moment in a different kind of mode, a poetic kind of documentary mode that she uses to really honor the um, the, the history and culture in ways that don't really happen in Hollywood cinema. And so Henry Portrait of a Serial Killer is one of those sort of anomalous uh, slasher movies. It, it's, it's, it's just it, it's interesting because it doesn't quite fit Jason and yeah. Freddy or well, John McNaughton got Dr. Hi- Giggles or yeah, whatever. He got hired to make a slasher movie and said, you fucking idiots. Right. <laughs> you rubes. Thank you for the $100,000. I'm going to make <laughs> a meditation on an absolute Tasmanian devil of a human being. But that being said, because it is so anomalous, it doesn't really fit in the literature. It yeah. doesn't really fit into what's the, the sort of sh- the, the warp and wheel of the genre. Yeah. And so it, ma- it makes it interesting, but it doesn't really make it that studyable. Sure. If that makes sense. Yeah, you have to tackle it. For, well, we have, you know, I made a class about distinctions and horror and true crime. You guys talked about ratings. Yeah, it's it's studyable from an angle, mm-hmm. right? Yeah, I think yeah. That's, that's interesting. So there you have it. None of us are shelving Henry, despite all of us, I think, being fascinated uh, by we, it. I mean, I like it. I, I, yeah. I'm glad I watched it. Yes. A, a big Shocktober uh, closeout, if ever there were one. Yes. Uh, leaving us feeling... Icky and dirty and ready to not watch any horror movies for a while. I need a palate cleanser, Arthur. Hook me up. Well, uh, yeah, let's uh, let's put the shocks behind us. Yeah. Uh, the Ocho is officially over, thank God. Yeah, now uh, we're Don't in, have to worry about that garbage uh, anymore. deep fall. Time for sweaters and family. Yeah, and 80-degree weather and shorts. Yeah. Um, hey, the McRib is back, so uh, mm. I had one yesterday. A pumpkin Two. spice McRib. Mm. Mm. Uh, <laughs> I'm going to be okay. Well, next week we're going to look at another little oddity. We talk production, we talk history, and we talk about how that looks. We're going to go to a little film uh, that was started by the great Stanley Kubrick, and ultimately, you know, he passed away, but someone had to step in and finish the job, and who better than one Steven Spielberg? Or was there a better who, option? Yeah. Or, or who, who weirder than Steven Spielberg? How weird is it that those two were buds? Yeah. Them as wow. chums is interesting, and I'm very excited to talk about this film because it's uh, I've never seen it. Yeah, so we're going to talk AI, artificial intelligence, Haley Joe Osment, uh, I don't know who else. Jude Law. St- uh, Steven Spielberg, Stanley Kubrick. It's going to be an interesting discussion, yeah. and uh, I'm excited to check it out. Hey, say some things about um, talking to us, Tom. Oh, if you insist. Yes, if you found this to be to your liking, uh, a bunch of dumb idiots talking about a movie you've probably never seen, uh, we're glad you had a good time. Uh, come back. You can uh, engage with us online in a number of ways. Send us your long-form feedback to goodtrashgenrecast at gmail.com if you got email thoughts. Follow us on Twitter. Can't imagine why you'd want to do that, at good underscore trash. Uh, keep uh, up to date on show releases, movies we're watching, things we're curious about what you're watching, uh, good articles from around the web. Uh, that's at good underscore trash. Again, you know, you listen to one of these dumb things before. Rate, review, subscribe. We're not on Spotify, but that's about the only place we're not at. 
Uh, you find, throw her name into Google. You already put this in your ears. Just subscribe with it however you're putting this in your ear right now. That would mean a lot to us. If you do enjoy this, if this is a show that you think is interesting and is engaging with film in a way that you find enjoyable, hey, thanks a lot. We appreciate that. If you want to make us appreciate you even more, you can go over to patreon.com forward slash GTM and give us some money. Uh, it turns out hosting fees uh, don't grow on trees. So we got to pay for that somehow, and also we have to maintain access to it shitload of streaming services to uh, find all the movies sometimes so again if you love this show uh, go to patreon.com forward slash gtm you can get some bonus listening for your ears uh and you know helps us keep the lights on uh but most importantly just enjoy the show that's all we ask you to come here for i hope your uh, commute or whatever uh, you put this in your ears for was good have a good day tell a friend about it maybe they'll tell them to start with this episode uh, or I, do whew, a bold choice if ever there were one that's it that's the show get out of here all right you keep watching we'll keep talking and we'll see you all next time